All right, good morning. Well, this morning we're going to close this uh, sermon series on the subject of spiritual disciplines. And as a way of reminding us why we're doing this series, I want to read a story about a friend of a friend of John Ortberg. Uh, we've been talking about transformation, about God's work of transforming us into the likeness of his son, Jesus Christ. And this is a story about a woman named Mabel, whose life clearly demonstrates uh, what it is that we're aiming for in our walk with Christ. So just enjoy this story. <clears throat> the state-run convalescent hospital is not a pleasant place. It is large, understaffed, and overfilled with senile and helpless and lonely people who are waiting to die. On the brightest of days, it seems dark inside, and it smells of sickness and stale urine. I went there once or twice a week for four years, but I never wanted to go there and always left with a sense of relief. It is not the kind of place one gets used to. On this particular day, I was walking in a hallway that I had not visited before, looking in vain for a few who were alive enough to receive a flower and a few words of encouragement. This hallway seemed to contain some of the worst cases, strapped onto carts or into wheelchairs and looking completely helpless. As I neared the end of this hallway, I saw an old woman strapped up in a wheelchair. Her face was an absolute horror. The empty stare and white pupils of her eyes told me that she was blind. The large hearing aid over one ear told me that she was almost deaf. One side of her face was being eaten by cancer. There was a discolored and running sore covering part of one cheek, and it had pushed her nose to one side, dropping one eye and distorted her jaw, so that what should have been the corner of her mouth was the bottom of her mouth. As a consequence, she drooled constantly. I was told later that when new nurses arrived, the supervisors would send them to feed this woman, thinking that if they could stand this sight, they could stand anything in the building. I also learned later that this woman was 89 years old and that she had been there bedridden, blind, nearly deaf, and alone for 25 years. This was Mabel. I don't know why I spoke to her. She looked less likely to respond than most of the people I saw in that hallway. But I put a flower in her hand and said, here's a flower for you, happy Mother's Day. She held the flower up to her face and tried to smell it, and then she spoke. And much to my surprise, her words, although somewhat garbled because of her deformity, were obviously produced by a clear mind. She said, thank you, it's lovely, but can I give it to someone else? I can't see, you know, I'm blind. I said, of course, and I pushed her in her chair back down the hallway to a place where I thought I could find some alert patients. I found one and I stopped the chair. Mabel held out the flower and said, here, this is from Jesus. That was when it began to dawn on me that this was not an ordinary human being. Later I wheeled her back to her room and learned more about her history. She had grown up on a small farm that she managed with only her mother until her mother died. <clears throat> then she ran the farm alone until 1950 when her blindness and sickness sent her to the convalescent hospital. For 25 years, she got weaker and sicker with constant headaches, backaches, and stomach aches, and then the cancer came too. Her three roommates were all human vegetables who screamed occasionally but never talked. They often soiled their bedclothes, and because the hospital was understaffed, especially on Sundays when I usually visited, the stench was often overpowering. 
Mabel and I became friends over the next few weeks, and I went to see her once or twice a week for the next three years. Her first words to me were usually an offer of hard candy from a tissue box near her bed. Some days I would read to her from the Bible, and often when I would pause, she would continue reciting the passage from memory, word for word. On other days, I would take a book of hymns and sing with her, and she would know all the words of the old songs. For Mabel, these were not merely exercises in memory. She would often stop in mid-hymn and make a brief comment about lyrics she considered particularly relevant to her own situation. I never heard her speak of loneliness or pain, except in the stress she placed on certain lines in certain hymns. It was not many weeks before I turned from a sense that I was being helpful to a sense of wonder, and I would go to her with, with a pen and paper to write down the things she would say. During one hectic week of final exams, I was frustrated because my mind seemed to be pulled in 10 directions at once with all of the things I had to think about. The question occurred to me, <clears throat> what does Mabel have to think about hour after hour, day after day, week after week, not even able to know if it's day or night? So I went to her and asked, Mabel, what do you think about when you lie here? And she said, I think about my Jesus. I sat there and thought for a moment about the difficulty for me of thinking about Jesus for even five minutes, and I asked, what do you think about Jesus? She replied slowly and deliberately as I wrote, I think about how good he's been to me. He's been awfully good to me in my life, you know. I'm one of those kind who's mostly satisfied. Lots of folks wouldn't care much for what I think. Lots of folks would think I'm kind of old-fashioned. But I don't care. I'd rather have Jesus. He's all the world to me. And then Mabel began to sing an old hymn. Jesus is all the world to me. My life, my joy, my all. He is my strength from day to day. Without him I would fall. When I am sad, to him I go. No other one can cheer me so. When I am sad, he makes me glad. He's my friend. Now, for some of us, it's hard to believe that this is a real person that we just read about. Stories like this sound fictional sometimes. How can this kind of inner strength, this kind of inner character be possible for someone like you and me? Well, this is what we've been talking about the last few weeks. God created us in his image. That's our identity. Sin tainted that image, but God's plan for our lives is to transform us into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. God sees what lies beneath, and it's something quite beautiful that he created himself. And he desires to work in us throughout our lives, chiseling away, transforming us, restoring us, back into that image. What we've been looking for in this series are things that we can be doing to give God the opportunities to do that transforming work in us. And that search has led us to some spiritual disciplines that we can put into practice in our lives to create those opportunities for God to work. We looked at the disciplines of confession, celebration. We looked at slowing, at secrecy, and this morning we'll look at two more that we can and should install in our lives as common practice for us. The first discipline that I want to suggest is a response to the need for a quality in our lives that has largely been lost. 
And that quality is purity of heart. Purity of heart. Purity is a value that's held in high regard in the Bible, but it's lost so much of its value in our society. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. The psalmist cried out, create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Paul wrote that we're to think about what is pure. He instructed Timothy to keep himself pure. And John wrote of the value of purity in his letter to the church as well. When Jesus referred to his bride, the church, he stressed the need for her to be pure. Yet we speak very rarely of purity. We've accepted the fact that no one will lead a pure life, which is true. But maybe we've thrown out the concept of purity, attaching it to our fallen state and haven't slowed to consider what God is asking of us. There's a terrifyingly humorous analogy for this loss of value of, you know, of purity here in our culture. Uh, it's found in the Food and Drug Administration in their standards for purity in the food that we eat. Uh, listen to a few examples of what they consider to be acceptable in the realm of purity. And this first one's a good example for us Minnesotans. Apple butter. If the mold count is 12% or more, if it averages four rodent hairs per 100 grams or more, if it averages five or more whole insects, not counting mites, aphids, or scale, per 100 grams, the FDA will pull it from the shelves. Otherwise, enjoy it on your toast. <laughs> Coffee beans. Coffee beans will be withdrawn from the shelf if an average of 10% or more are insect infested, or if there is one live insect in each of two or more immediate containers. So if your container happens to be the only one they found, well, enjoy the extra protein. <laughs> Mushrooms. Mushrooms cannot be sold if there is an average of 20 or more maggots of any size per 15 grams of dried mushrooms. Fig paste, an odd one. If there are more than 13 insect heads per 100 grams of fig paste in each of two or more subsamples, sub the FDA will toss the works. Um, apparently they don't care about feet or wings or <laughs> any other parts. Hot dogs. No, I'm, I'm not going to go there, don't worry. <laughs> this is not fear factor. <laughs> the point is that God has called us to a standard of purity. It's a standard that we cannot reach on our own, and so from our own human perspective, rather than striving to maintain that standard, we gradually lower that standard to include a tolerable number of impurities. As long as we maintain a standard of purity that keeps some sort of division between us and the world around us, we can keep our consciences at bay. Now stop and think about the standard that God has called us to. He told us in 2 Corinthians 3.18 that he is the one doing the purifying. Paul says that we are being transformed. God's spirit is doing that work in us. And in the process, God calls us to be purely human. And to be purely human is to be living in a state of transformation. It means we're to agree with and support the process of transformation. 
We're to keep ourselves engaged in that process. It means that we're to be on board with this idea that we're being shaped into the likeness of Christ. And so we have an active role in the work. We're just not the ones doing it. Hence the need for discipline in our lives. How do we stay on task? How do we live in a state of availability to God for him to carry out his work in us? Purity of heart's at the core of how this is accomplished. We must maintain purity of heart. And purity of heart has to do with the focus of our will. Soren Kierkegaard writes that purity of heart is to will one thing. We will ourselves towards one pursuit in life, and that pursuit is the transforming work that God's doing in us. But the obvious, obvious concern here is that we are loyal to that one thing. So I have to ask myself, self, are you loyal to that one thing? Or is my loyalty divided? Now, certain people are, are known for their loyalty to a very clear pursuit. Uh, Steve Jobs was known for a very clear loyalty to the development of Apple computers. That was his one thing that he willed. Donald Trump's one thing is also obvious, money. Tiger Woods had that one thing. It used to be golf, and then his loyalty was divided, and look what happened there. Billy Graham is known for his one thing. This pursuit of our one thing is what God's looking for when he talks about purity of heart. And here's where God is a jealous God. The one thing that he has in mind for us is him. God is to be our one thing, and we ought to be known for that thing. Jesus said, seek first God and his kingdom. A pure heart is a simple heart. It seeks one thing. That's what God wants from us. But we mess this purity of heart thing up pretty badly, don't we? That's why James had to write this in James chapter 4, verse 8. We looked at this verse earlier in this series. He says, come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded And this is what the whole double-minded thing is about. Where does our loyalty lie? Is God our one thing? Do we have a single-minded loyalty to God? Uh, When I was a young adult, this term single-minded really turned me off, and I really haven't dug deep enough to figure it out uh, since then until this past week. It seemed like it was a recurring theme for young adult groups used to encourage those of us who were convinced that we'd never be married. So young adult pastors built messages around this idea that we were honoring God by having a single-minded love for him. In other words, we were the strong that could survive the temptation of marriage. We would remain single-minded. It was lame theology. Now this is where so much of our discontent in life comes from. We want intimacy with God, but we also want intimacy with certain aspects of this world. We want to be generous, but we also hoard and covet. We want to serve the kingdom, but we're often driven by arrogance and self-service. We want to be known as humble, so we say humble things to impress other people. We want to be set apart, but we also want to be worldly wise. We want the right thing, but our loyalty's far too often divided so that we can have what we perceive, perceive to be two right things or more. So how do we focus our loyalty? How do we recover this purity of heart? How do we stay single-minded in the right way for the right reasons? How do we maintain simplicity in our life experience, having hearts that are pure in their loyalty? 
How do we keep from getting pulled in opposite directions? How do we get to the point where our inner motives agree with our public posture? How do we keep from being divided? And the answer is so obvious. It's, it's embarrassing how obvious it is. It's something that we so readily accepted when we were children. It's the B-I-B-L-E. We are the bride of Jesus Christ. And we are to be the pure bride. And we have not been left without guidance on how to see this happen. Uh, last summer we studied the book of Ephesians. And I gave Peter a passage to preach on that he still hasn't forgiven me for. It was a passage about how husbands and wives should treat each other. And in that passage lies a clue to this concept of being a purified bride before our groom. This is what Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 27. He said, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. How does Christ's bride get to be holy and blameless? By being cleansed by Christ. And how does he cleanse his bride? He washes her, he purifies her with his word. God brings his word into us through our, our minds to cleanse our hearts and make them pure. And imagine the end result of that cleansing because I don't think we really ever consider what this could look like. This is how John Ortberg puts it. He says, imagine having a mind cleansed of all the debris that blocks our best intentions. Imagine if each time you saw another person, your first thought was to pray for him or bless her. Imagine what it would be like if any time you were challenged or anxious, your reflexive response would be to turn to God for strength. Imagine if you're a married man, that whenever you looked at, an, at any woman other than your wife, you would see her as if she were your sister or your daughter. Imagine genuinely wishing your enemies well. That's what it would look like to be washed with the word. And this is how we can be further transformed. We must engage the spiritual discipline of meditating on scripture. The Bible's here to help us learn to live in the kingdom of God here and now. It's here to help us know our creator and our groom. It's here to equip us to fulfill our calling. It's here to be used for teaching and building up. It is indescribably rich and alive. Sadly, there's such a huge gap between that reality and the reality of everyday life for us. Now, if we were asked what one book we'd choose to have with us on a deserted island, of course we'd choose the Bible, right? But we won't actually read the Bible until we become stranded on a deserted island, it seems. There are many, many ways to read the Bible and reflect on it. And I couldn't take time right now to go into all the Bible reading plans, the devotionals, the audio tools and amazing resources that are out there to help us do this meditating on Scripture thing. Uh, yes, there's an app for that. The how part is easy. We just have to do it. That's the discipline part. Let me give you a few brief guidelines for enriching the experience once you actually start doing it. As you practice the discipline of meditating on Scripture, number one, ask God to meet you in Scripture. 
I've heard many testimonies of people coming to faith in Christ because they read the Bible. And there they met Christ. Now remember that the word is alive. And ask God to meet you in your time of meditating on the word. Number two, read the Bible in a repentant spirit. Read with a readiness to surrender and obey. Yes, study the word, but don't read it just to acquire information or to prove a point. Read it to be changed by it. Read it to create an opportunity for God to transform you no matter how hard that transforming work might be. Number three, meditate on a fairly brief passage or story. When we study the word, we often do have to cover a great deal of ground. That's what Bible college was like. Lots of reading, but when we meditate on the word, we let the depth and impact of each verse or each passage sink in, and that takes time. Number four, take one thought or verse with you through the day. You can't meditate on the word quickly. Those two terms collide. They don't like each other. It's like this. Two weeks ago, we focused on just one verse in the sermon. Be still and know that I am God. Carry your thought, your verse throughout the day and continue to meditate on it. And number five, allow this meditation to become a part of your memory The psalmist said, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Don't borrow the word of God. Keep it. It's yours. Make it a permanent fixture in your mind. Give God the opportunity to do his transforming work in you by meditating on his word. I think we'd be amazed at how much this will affect our lives. Let Christ wash your heart with the word of God. I want to spend just a little time on one final discipline. Um, This one will tie together a lot of what we've been looking at in this series. It has to do with this illusion that we live under. Uh, We have once again been deceived into believing in a false goal. It actually is a goal, but not the goal that God has in mind for us. It's a lesser goal that simply pales compared to the goal that God desires to take place in our lives. And this deceptive goal is called balance. Hence the sermon title, Better Than Balance. So many times I've heard people talk about the desire to find balance in their lives. Balance is that experience that we want so badly. We looked recently at the sickness of busyness. And to so many, the remedy for that sickness is thought to be balance. We want to be able to keep all the plates in our lives spinning. We desire to be able to give adequate attention and time to each category that we take on, and so we're tempted to compartmentalize our lives. This happens a lot. And this is where we really run into danger. Life was not intended to look like this, to look like a pie chart. We seem to believe that this is the life that God designed for us, some sort of test to see how well we balance all the compartments of life, the vocational, the physical, the intellectual, the recreational, the relational, the financial, and, oh yeah, the spiritual. And we fight an unending fight to keep all these compartments in balance. As if our schedule was at the center of the universe. As if there was nothing bigger in life than the arrangement of our compartments. You think God is looking to us for a balanced life? Uh, I have to laugh when I put Bible characters into this equation. Did the Apostle Paul lead a balanced life? Because it must be an admirable goal if we're putting all this energy into creating it, right? Right? 
Okay, so Paul, tell us about the balance in your life. <clears throat> From 2 Corinthians chapter 11. What anyone else dares to boast about, I am speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast about. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? Now clearly Paul had balance issues in his life. So there must have been something else that he was pursuing. What was it? How did he know about it? And what does it mean to us? Well, we've already touched on one of the clues. Jesus tells us to seek first his Father and his kingdom. We're to have a single, undivided loyalty in our hearts. And our hearts are to be pure. And our hearts are to be also well-ordered. Balance in our lives is not going to produce a well-ordered heart. Why? Because balance is dependent on external factors. On the other hand, a well-ordered heart is dependent on internal factors. A well-ordered heart is basically this, loving the right thing to the right degree in the right way with the right kind of love. Once again, our affections cannot be divided by all these segments of our life's pie chart. No one thing on that chart can become our primary pursuit. Our primary pursuit has to be bigger than any segment of our pie or even bigger than balancing all those things. Listen to these words from Jesus and tell me if you see balance here. From Matthew chapter 10. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it and whoever loses his life for my sake We'll find it. We're to lose our lives for Christ's sake, not balance them. Christ was committed to this, and so was Paul. This is how committed Paul was from 1 Corinthians 9. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. One pursuit, God's will for his life. And with that in place as the one pursuit, God brought the, left, the rest of Paul's life into place, a life that had an eternal impact on this world. So let's talk about the discipline that's necessary in order to bring order to our hearts because here too our loyalties get divided. We're committed to one compartment in our lives and then another and another and eventually, inevitably, something gets out of balance, out of order. And we lose the experience that God created us to have. We need a plan. 
creating opportunities for God to do his transforming work in us does not just happen randomly. Morphing is not our default mode. Seeing our hearts fall in order is not going to happen by itself. Yes, God does the work, but we create the opportunities. That's the discipline aspect of transformation. So how do we create opportunities for God to transform us in the area of having a well-ordered heart? Well, Paul wrote this to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 10, 31. He said, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And then he got even more specific in Colossians 3, 17. He said, and whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him. Living life in the name of Jesus Christ means more than just ending your prayer at dinner within Jesus' name, amen. We have to learn to live our lives in Jesus' name. Not just our spiritual compartment. Living in Jesus' name means that Jesus is Lord, period. There's nothing to select to give him lordship over He's Lord of all. The discipline aspect of doing this comes by way of intentionality. How do we practice that lordship? We ask ourselves intentionally and consistently what it would look like if we lived each and every minute of our lives in Jesus' name. Every minute of every day. How can I wake up in Jesus' name? Maybe I need to agree that God knows what's ahead and trust him with the outcome of the day. How can I greet people in Jesus' name? Jesus would notice them, look right at them, and give them his full attention. How could I drive in Jesus' name? Well, if I try, I'll be late for work every day. How could I find rest and renewal in Jesus' name? What will contribute to a well-ordered heart? How can I relate to my brothers and sisters in Christ in Jesus' name? And we're gonna answer that one this spring. How can I fulfill my work assignments in Jesus' name? How can I raise my kids in Jesus' name? How can I spend my money in Jesus' name? All right, now I'm getting too personal. How can I love my wife in Jesus' name? How am I going to provide God with the opportunities that he desires to carry out his transforming work in my life? I'm going to live in Jesus' name. Is it safe for me to to assume that we all want to be transformed into the likeness of Christ? I think I can assume that. So I invite you to take a look at your life and commit to the disciplines that we've looked at in this series. God has created you in his image and his desire is to restore that image in you. But he's not going to do it without your participation. Make that process your highest pursuit in life. Invite God through the disciplines that you practice to restore in you the identity that he has given you. I'm going to invite the ushers and the worship team to come now and we'll take our offering and wrap up our service. Will you pray with me as they come? Father, I thank you for these times that you give us to be together. Thank you for the availability of your word. Thank you, Father, for not giving up 
your desire to do this transforming work in our lives. There are far too many times when we've ignored you. There are far too many times when we've been distracted. There are far too many times when we've made some lame attempt to balance our lives thinking that that's it, that's the ultimate goal. There are far, far too many times when our loyalty has been divided. When you have not been the only love in our lives. God, you made it clear to us that we can't love you and love the world. That we have to make a decision. That we ignore the very thing that's going to create that in us, that's going to cause that loyalty to deepen and strengthen. So God, we ask for your continued patience and perseverance as you wash our hearts with your word. God, let us develop this habit of meditating on your word. We want this to be a higher priority in our lives. We want to do this regularly, faithfully, so that you can carry out this work that you want to do in us. So God, just put it in our way. Help us to learn to travel with your word, to wake up with your word, to go to bed with your word, whatever it is that, that you've got for us, whatever this method is that, that you want us to use to develop this discipline in our lives. Help us to do it. And God, as we face every day, teach us how to live in Jesus' name. Teach us how to live in a way that glorifies you, that declares to you from our inner being that you are Lord of everything. Help us to resist the temptation to find spots in the day where you mean nothing and we're loyal to something else. Help us to ask ourselves the tough questions about how we love our spouses and our kids in your name, how we spend our money in your name, how we spend our leisure time in your name. And what a comfort it is to know that your desire for us is only the best. Father, guide us into a life of transforming so that that's what we're about, that's what we're known for, that's our one thing is that people can just see us growing more and more all the time. Thank you for promising to continue this work that you've started. Take our lives, God, as a gift. Let them be consecrated, set apart for you so that you can do that work in us that you want to do, knowing full well that your purpose will be fulfilled in us, this world will be impacted through us, and you will be pleased, glorified, honored, praised, lifted up, just like you intended. Father, we praise you for all that you're doing in our lives. We praise you for opportunities like last night with the men that were gathered here, almost 70 of us here, to, to listen to testimony, to worship you, to share our experiences. 
We praise you for what you did last night and what you're going to continue to do for all the different things that are taking place that put us in places that give us opportunities for you to do that work in our lives. Thank you for your provision for us. Thank you for all that have given to see this ministry grow and flourish. Praise you for their generosity. Take what we have to offer now and multiply it, Lord. We need your strength. We need your direction, your guidance as we continue to move forward. And we need to continue to be purified by your word. We are your bride and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.